Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello, and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of our podcast. Today, our conversation will be with Emily Kyle, an estate planning and elder law attorney with Kyle Law Firm. And we're going to be discussing legal concerns and dementia. Janice, after a diagnosis of dementia, people are likely to hear the statement, get your affairs in order. Now, whether that's part of a broader discussion of support services and living well with a chronic condition is a discussion for another episode. But regardless of the experience, the common piece of advice is around affairs. And what does affairs really mean? Not only are there important plans to be reconsidered or put into place, There are other legal considerations that can really leave us scratching our heads and at a loss for where to begin. So today we're going straight to the source. We're talking to an elder law attorney with extensive experience untangling legal considerations for someone living with dementia. I can only imagine how hearing the words, get your affairs in order, must feel and it must be such an emotional moment. Um, And you might have listened to our episode, Now is the Time to Make a Plan with Barbara Clouser. And she shared why it is so important to have a conversation with our family and to make choices about what we want for our healthcare in the future in advance. So no matter what our age is, we need to have these conversations. And our topic today, legal issues and dementia, can get so complex. And like you said, it can leave us scratching our heads with so many questions. And often, just the thought of anything legal stresses people out. And this can become so much more complicated as cognition is impacted. So we have so many questions around this topic today, and we're grateful to have elder law attorney Emily Kyle with us to help us navigate this topic. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for joining our conversation. Thank you for having me today. I really appreciate it. Before you help us untangle these legal considerations, can you tell us a little bit more about you? I want to know some more about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community. Sure. Thank you um, for asking. So I've had kind of a winding path in my legal career, and I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. And so my goal in being an attorney has always been to help people. You know, we think of, of lawyers as counselors. And so that seemed to really fit my personality, what warms my soul. And so I had an opportunity to uh, meet with uh, Dr. Terrio, actually, at Banner at the beginning of um, the Alzheimer's Clinic starting. 
and realized that as part of estate planning, there was an entire population who were focused on not theoretically, what does my plan need to look like, but what does my plan need to look like? Right now, I have an issue and I need to know that either what I have in place or what I need to put in place is going to work from a practical standpoint. And so that helped me reframe, not just when I work with families who have dementia or some other chronic disease, but that every estate plan should be made to be practical and about the family and its situation and what do we need to help now and again in the future. I also have uh, my husband's grandparents who lived until their late 80s. We always used to kind of joke around. They'd been together. They got married when they were about 16 years old. And towards the end, he couldn't hear and she couldn't see. So we said they made the perfect couple. Um, but unfortunately, he got Alzheimer's later in life. And one of the most frightening things that happened is he was driving the car on the country lane in which they'd lived forever and got completely confused, stopped the car, got out of the car in the middle of traffic and had absolutely no idea where he was mm -hmm. with my husband's grandmother in the car. And so that also helped to cement to me, we, we really need to have conversations with families and figure out ways to keep all of our loved ones safe. So that's kind of how I've gotten to where I am. Wow, Emily, what a, a powerful and scary story about your husband's grandparents. I like that you talk about really needing to, this kind of practical advice. Can we just start sort of at the beginning and can you walk us through some of the legal issues that we need to consider as we get older? Sure. And I think to kind of reframe that, estate planning in general is really something you shouldn't wait to do until you think you're old enough to do it. You know, once somebody turns 18, they have the ability, um, unless they have some other developmental or other disability from a cognitive standpoint, to put together a plan. And the plan can continue to evolve. Oftentimes, people come to see me and they say, I'm afraid I'm too late. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? And they'll let me know that their loved one no longer knows who they are, is unable to identify who the family members are, really is kind of beyond the point of being able to direct what should happen and who should be making decisions. So we got to get somewhere between 18 and I don't know who you are anymore for people to start thinking about what are the legal issues and how do we structure documents, which is the best really we can do, that are going to meet that person's needs. And so when people think about an estate, I think that it's a misnomer because they think that you have to have a grand palace in order to think you have an estate to worry about. We all have an estate. We all have ourselves that need to be taken care of. And for most folks, we have at least some stuff that we need somebody to perhaps help us take care of when we can't do it anymore and also figure out where's that going to go and who's going to make healthcare choices for me. And so it's not just about old-fashioned estate planning for 
uh, tax efficiency, but what are the decisions to be made and who's going to make those choices for me? You know, where your stuff goes when you die. Yeah, we all have an attachment. and We want to make sure that whatever legacy we've left behind with our stuff goes to people who will cherish and honor it. But we really have to focus on who, who is a decision maker for me. You know, just because your one child is the oldest child, if them walking into a hospital, they're going to pass out because they can't stand being in a hospital and the smells and the people and blood and all of those other things. That's not a great choice for your healthcare agents. You know, maybe you have a, a medical professional in your family and that's a person who makes better decisions about those things. You know, the same for the finances. It's not about just, again, where your stuff goes, but who's going to pay your bills? Who's going to make sure your taxes get paid? Who's going to ensure that your investments are handled appropriately? And families have all kinds of circumstances. Maybe you have a, an individual who resides in your house and doesn't pay rent, and you want that to continue. So we want to make sure that those individual goals you have are expressed in that plan. So really, estate planning seems like a such a huge thing, like I have to have an estate. But just think about it at the more, at the local level to yourself. It's about taking care of you. It's about taking care of your loved ones. And it's making sure we have appropriate decision makers. I like how you take this complex topic and you do, you make it so practical. And we need that, especially in the midst of topics that people are living with that are so challenging. Death and dementia, they are two of the most stressful situations. I wonder, how does getting things in order as we age differ for people living with dementia when they're being told, get your affairs in order? So I always find it to be such an interesting phrase, get your affairs in order, because most likely the, so let's say the doctor is saying that to the patient, you now is the time to get your affairs in order. I believe, because at least this is how it would feel for myself. If you tell me that all I'm thinking about is what affairs. <laughs> so I think it's important to think about what are my affairs and how do I put that in order? What are the highest priorities? And I am hopeful that people are thinking about legal documents because as I said, it's really the only way that we can know what you want to have happen and who you want to help make those decisions. But your affairs could also be things like, who's gonna take care of my pets? If I can't manage that anymore, do I want them to leave my home or do I want to say in my documents that my pets should stay with me and that it's okay for my agent or my trustee to use funds to make sure somebody is keeping an eye on them, make sure they're fed, make sure that they're getting appropriate exercise. Again, maybe you have a loved one, a child or somebody else who lives in the home with you and has always lived there. And you want to make sure that that person can continue to live in that property and maybe not pay rent. Or your thoughts are, I've always had this person in my house and when something bad happens to me and I can't be here anymore, it's important for, my, for that person and others around that person to know 
that it's time to sell the house because now I'm the priority to make sure that there are funds available to pay for my care. I think it's also a really good opportunity to sit down with your loved ones and decision makers and help them understand what their role is. Is, are you my healthcare agent? Are you my trustee? Um, are you going to make sure to pay my bills? Do you know who my CPA is? Do you know who the financial advisor is? Do I have a list of medications and allergies? Do they know who my physician is? Does anybody even know what I've been diagnosed with? So maybe they could call more often or make sure that somebody's checking in on me. Should my mail go somewhere else? Should it go to the person who's going to pay the bills? One of the things that makes any disease, but certainly dementia, so hard is that many people are not aware of the limitations that they have. So in the moment, they feel like they took care of something, but maybe they started to, then they don't remember that they started it, and they certainly don't remember that they didn't finish it. So allowing other people to understand what your goals are, where the documents are located, who your advisors are, who the people are who, who um, are your physicians, then when they step into your shoes, they can understand where it is they need to pick up. What do they need to do to make that better for you? I think it's also an opportunity and clearly not something you know we want to think about, but Part of the goal of doing an estate plan, drafting documents, is to take the guilt away from people. So if your goal is that you want to stay home, then your document should say that. As long as I can be cared for at home and I have the financial means to do so, that's what I want to have happen. I see a lot of people, though, who really like to go to a facility, even if it's a day program. They don't want to just sit at home and watch TV all day. They want to be around other people. They were social before they had too much of a cognitive impairment, and they want to continue with those social activities. They might need some structure around it, but it's an opportunity to do some kind of a memo of intent. These are the things that are important to me. So again, when you're younger, I think people are thinking about who's going to take care of my minor children. And as we age, we want to think about who's going to take care of me. Who's going to take care of my spouse? Maybe I'm the well spouse and my spouse has been diagnosed. Who's going to step in if I can't do that anymore? So it's a huge canyon of get my affairs in order. I always find making lists is great. And then sharing those with the people who are going to have to make those decisions. So I hope that's helpful to the listeners. Emily, you bring up a lot of important questions that I, I really hadn't considered, I guess, as being part of an estate planning process. Now, you're an elder law attorney, and a lot of this conversation today is focused on you don't need to be aging to put plans in place. So could you tell me what's the difference between an elder law attorney and a general attorney? And how does someone know when they should be reaching out to an elder law attorney? It's a question that makes me laugh. Because when I first started in my younger years, clients would come in and they would say, well, you're too young to be an elder law attorney. And I thought, well, the point isn't actually about me, uh, but nobody asks, nobody says that to me anymore, which now I am sad about. 
But I think that an elder law attorney is somebody who's looking down the highway of life and thinking about how will you pay for care as you age? What are the resources out there that you or your family might need for any disease progression that may come your way? Although I think that dementia is probably the most common that we hear about. And we're thinking about Medicaid. Are you going to need some kind of Medicaid services in the future? Do you have um, special needs kids at home? Are there other issues to think about? Not just we want documents so we know where your stuff's going to go when you pass away and making sure it's done in the most tax efficient manner. So I think an elder law is thinking more broadly maybe about lifestyle issues and challenges that you might have in the future that is more related to a potential disease process. And again, thinking very practically, you know, this might sound silly, but you know, in Arizona, we have a lot of transplants, which certainly other states do as well. And I'm also, I'm often asked or told by clients, make sure in my healthcare document that it says my remains are to be returned to Nebraska at the family plot. Things like that, that are very important to people that maybe some other kind of attorney isn't thinking about those personal touches that are important to clients. So, you know, elder law attorneys do a lot of different things. It's kind of an odd term. First of all, none of us want to think of ourselves as elderly, but somebody might be an elder law attorney who uh, sues nursing homes for abuse and neglect claims. Or you might have an elder law attorney who only focuses on Medicaid applications, all text applications, to get people um, approved to pay for long-term care services. So it's really a grouping of attorneys who are thinking about as I said, lifestyle issues and trying to be practical about what's going on in that family. When someone reaches out to an elder law attorney, maybe it's a caregiver, is there anything that they should let the attorney know as they're setting up the appointment? So that's a fabulous question. So first, when people call an attorney's office, They should never expect to talk to the lawyer because we have an ethical obligation to make sure that we don't have a conflict with whomever's calling. Maybe you have divorced people and there might be some conflict in representing both of them. There might not be. Um, You might, an attorney might represent the trustee and a beneficiary calls. So we have to make sure that the calls are screened appropriately, that we're not breaching any ethical rules, and also um, to make sure that whatever your need is, our office can handle or the attorney's office can handle. So I hope you won't be offended when you call any attorney's office, you got their name from a friend, um, and you say, yes, but my friend said I should call. You're still going to probably talk to staff. And it's really helpful if you tell us things we should be sensitive to so that the staff member can put those notes in the calendar. Maybe your loved one um, gets very, very aggravated if we say, I understand that you've been diagnosed with dementia. Maybe, however, if you 
if they were told that they have a limited cognitive impairment or they have an age related disease or they went to see the doctor and now's just the time to get our affairs in order, but please don't say anything about the cognitive impairment. Similarly, if you have, um, if we need to speak more clearly, loudly, sit on the right side of you, you want the shades drawn because you're, it bothers your eyes to have the reflection on the windows. We're here to be helpful. We know that it's stressful to come see an attorney um, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, regular, friendly, normal people, but we understand that coming to a lawyer's office is not something people do on a regular basis, and you're going to be a little anxious. So help us make you feel more comfortable by giving us any information that's going to be helpful. Although I did have a client, um, a husband and wife that came in many, many years ago, and he sat down and he said, I just need to tell you something. And I said, what is it, sir? And he said, I want you to know that I have Alzheimer's. And I said, okay. He said, you know what? President Reagan had Alzheimer's and he did really well. So if he had Alzheimer's, maybe I can be president someday. And I thought, what a great outlook. Emily, that's a great story. And, and what a great attitude that gentleman had. You know, now that we've kind of laid the framework and you mentioned with elder law attorneys, uh, some of them are helping with Medicaid applications. And I think inevitably people start thinking towards how do I protect my assets? Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that and, you know, enabling people to make sure their wishes are realized? When I think about when a person comes in who has a loved one or themselves have been diagnosed with a, with a cognitive impairment or some kind of dementia, when they're talking about protecting their assets, what they're asking is, how do I ensure that all of my money does not go to pay for care expenses? This is kind of another difference from an attorney who's not an elder law attorney. When you ask uh, somebody, a, a different attorney who's doing estate planning, how do I protect my assets? They're mostly thinking about creditor protection from lawsuits. And so it has a different meaning, I think, depending on who you're talking to. So many people may be aware of our Medicaid program. Every state has a different Medicaid program in Arizona. Ours is called Altex, the Arizona Long-Term Care System. And one of the most important documents to allow an attorney to help you obtain Altex and preserve as much of your assets as possible is your financial power of attorney document. I always say to people, even if they've used the attorney general forms for healthcare documents, not to just go online and get a financial power of attorney or a durable power of attorney, because we really want to have very specific abilities to maybe do gifting, perhaps make a, an asset that was a community asset, the sole and separate property of the spouse who does not have a cognitive impairment to be able to file an application. If the person has too much in income, we might have to do something called a Miller Trust or an income only trust. And that financial power of attorney is the way that we can make sure that that can be created. So when you apply for benefits, all of the assets that are in either spouse's name or in a trust that benefits either one of them may be deemed to be counted resources. So what we're trying to do when we're doing some kind of planning 
is do we want to move all the assets to the well spouse now and have the spouse who's been diagnosed but is still competent sign off that they don't have any community property right in those assets anymore? So we'll have some flexibility as to what to do with the money. But having that financial power of attorney is really the key. And remember, lots of people say, well, I don't want the state taking my money. Medicaid is the state actually paying for your care once you meet the eligibility criteria. What is very important is if you're thinking that's a direction you want to go, is making sure you do talk to a professional. You don't want to just give money away. People think that they can gift up to $16,000 a year and it's not a problem. And it isn't a problem from a tax perspective, it's under the gift tax exclusion, but for all tax, any money that's given away to somebody other than a spouse could really impact your ability to get all tax at a later time. The other thing to think about is if you have a trust, so not thinking about all tax, not thinking about paying for long-term care, but if you have a trust, the way a trust works is it's to allow your trustee to manage assets that are titled in the trust. So when you leave the lawyer's office with your big binder, you probably still have homework to do. And that homework is to make sure that instead of your bank account saying Emily Kyle, it says Emily Kyle, trustee of the Kyle Family Trust. So make sure you're following through to ensure that your plan is actually going to work the way that you had hoped that it would work. With all of these complex things to be mindful of, is there a checklist or a website that's helpful? And where should you keep those documents and who should know about them? There isn't really a checklist, I think, until you get to the professional's office, because every person's stuff, not really a legal term, but their stuff is just different. Their, their family dynamics are gonna be different. Certainly the State Bar of Arizona has a website that's helpful and talks about powers of attorney and guardianship and conservatorship in the event the person doesn't have capacity anymore. Obviously, Banner Health has a great website to help people figure out the things that they're going to need. The Alzheimer's Association, the Area Agency on Aging, those are all uh, places you can go for unbiased information uh, to help you through the process. Making sure that people know where your documents are, that they can access those documents, and that you have let people know who the decision makers are is unbelievably important. So just again, another kind of personal story, but my father, who didn't have Alzheimer's, passed away in his mid-50s, very unexpectedly. And he took care of absolutely everything. So even my mom didn't know who the CPA and the financial advisor were. And it was back in the day when mail used to come to your mailbox. So at least we could wait each month and see the statements and kind of piece things together. But now with everything pretty much online, if somebody doesn't even know your password, they're not even going to be able to get into your email or into those accounts to figure out what's going on. And oftentimes clients will say, well, I don't want to share that with anybody. So my, my rhetorical response is always, well, then why did you pick them? Do you think that they're going to be better people when you're incapacitated and can't protect yourself or after you're gone? 
So if you can't trust the people with that information while you're around where you could change your password if they do a bad thing, I think maybe you want to rethink who you've chosen to be decision makers. So you want to pick people or entities who are trustworthy, who are going to take care of you, who are going to do the right thing, and who you can absolutely and implicitly trust. I love family meetings. Everybody in the room together, as hard as they are to talk about these very difficult topics, and it's not to say you have a bank account with X dollars in it, or you have life insurance with this much money. It's about sharing information that these are where my assets are, and I've chosen this person to be my decision maker so that there's not going to be that family fight afterwards. Let's get it out in the open now. Let's put everybody on the same page. Emily, we've touched on the importance of pre-planning and thinking of things before they're necessary, rather than reacting, I should say. You know, with Alzheimer's and other dementias, the question inevitably comes up around capacity. We know at a certain point, the person living with a dementia isn't going to be able to make their own decisions. But I feel like there's such a gray area around when that point is. How does someone determine if an individual has capacity and who even does that? That is a fabulous question. And it is a huge gray area. It's a gray area, not only because what does capacity mean, but capacity for what? You know, maybe the person knows that they don't like macaroni and cheese, but they do like peanut butter and jelly. We should honor what that decision is, but maybe they don't have the capacity to manage a checkbook. They don't have the capacity to drive anymore. They don't have the capacity to be in the house by themselves. So it's not just about capacity. It's a capacity for what decisions. Usually we're relying on a physician to help us understand what's the limit of that capacity. Sometimes it's, you know, very clear, very obvious to everybody what when somebody's capacity is is so low that they, as I said, might not recognize family and friends, might not be able to have a discussion that makes sense to other people around them. But oftentimes it's much more nuanced than that. Sometimes somebody needs to have a neuropsychological evaluation that may take several hours to be able to pull out the information about where are those issues, where are those weaknesses in their ability to be to make decisions or care for themselves, and where are do they still have strength? What are the things that they still can be independent doing? For estate planning documents, I always kind of laugh because capacity to make a will is a pretty low standard. You know, do you know who your natural heirs would be, and do you have some sense as to what the value of your assets are. So that's very different than maybe entering into a real estate agreement and or doing a loan document. Um, that also might be very different than driving a car. So when a lawyer has a question about capacity based maybe on a diagnosis, the lawyer may say, I need you to get a letter from your doctor that says you have the capacity to do your estate plan. Because again, maybe you couldn't drive yourself here, but I need to know that you're making independent decisions about who your decision makers are 
and where your stuff's going to go. In a court, if we're doing a guardianship or conservatorship, the court also is going to rely on either written or oral testimony from a physician as to whether that person has capacity to make financial decisions and or health decisions. But we also have to understand that timing may make a difference on capacity. You know, somebody might be really good in the morning and really not good in the afternoon. They have to have capacity at the time they're making that decision for that, let's say, that will. In the moment, did they understand what they were doing and did they have capacity? I think also when we have potential litigation on the horizon, when we have family members who are not being treated the same or we already have discord in the family, the level of making sure that the person had capacity is not subject to undue influence, is making their own decisions becomes that much more heightened. So we don't then end up with a problem after we know that they can't help direct or explain why they made those choices. You know, there's a topic that you've brought up a couple times today, and it is driving. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but can you tell us what what are the consequences if a person living with dementia is driving and then ends up in an accident? Yeah, so I really think that people need to take the advice of those around them about the safety of the driver. And as you can tell, I'm kind of a visual person. When I tell stories, it's what I see in my head. So if you would be comfortable having an infant alone in the car while the person who maybe has been diagnosed with dementia is driving, are you comfortable with that? So we have a vulnerable person in a vehicle who can't take over the driving, can't say, oh my gosh, it's a red light, you need to slow down. Is that something you're gonna be comfortable with? From a liability standpoint, for the most part, you're not really liable for somebody else's actions. If you know that somebody's license has been revoked or suspended and you give them the keys and say, yeah, can you run that errand for me? Or, oh, it's fine for you to drive. I think you've exposed yourself to some potential issues. You may also want to talk to your insurance agent about what would happen if that person who was diagnosed but whose license remains unsuspended were to end up in an accident and hurt somebody. But most importantly, outside of the actual legal liability, which would get fought out in a court of law, like I started at the beginning of the podcast, think practically. Does it make sense? Do you need that person to drive? I understand it might cause an inconvenience, but we have all kinds of rideshare abilities now. You can arrange for a time for somebody to get picked up. You can use your phone to get somebody from point A to point B. Would really, really encourage you to think about the safety of your loved one, of yourself, and of the public. So as soon as you think it's a concern, it's probably time to take over the driving. This entire conversation, one word just keeps coming back to me, and it was a word that you used in your introduction, which was practical. I think you've given us so much practical 
advice, practical thoughts today. I wonder if you could give us your final thought when it comes to legal concerns and dementia. I would like for people to remember that their legal documents are not something to just put on the bookshelf or in the safety deposit box and hide away for a rainy day. Pull it out, make sure it's still gonna work for you, make sure it meets your needs. Remember, you can do a memo of intent and direct people as to what you wanna have happen. Give us an expression so we have an expression of your wishes so we know what you would have wanted. And don't wait, don't put your head in the sand. Don't wait to do your estate plan. The time is now. You just need to come in and talk to an attorney to get stuff on paper and the attorney's gonna do the work to get it all drafted. So just don't wait. Time is really of the essence. So get started. Today, our conversation has been with Emily Kyle, an estate planning and elder law attorney with Kyle Law Firm. We so appreciate you helping us untangle legal considerations and dementia. Yes, thank you so much, Emily. This has been such an important conversation today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for all the great work that Banner Health does in the community. Thank you so much. And thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast. I'm looking forward to our next conversation on Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation. Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com. Mm -hmm.